Welcome back to another edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. This is part two of a discussion with Dr. Andrew Herring on the use of buprenorphine after overdose of an opiate. If you have not listened to part one, this part's not going to make any sense. You got to go back one in the feed and take a listen. The first part, we talked about an overview of the subject and some suggested protocols and dosing measures. This is all going to be the nitty-gritty data. So Dr. Herring goes into detail about what data exists, what doesn't, and what we need to research next to really be able to know the best way to use this, as well as prove to some of the skeptics that this approach is safe. And that's per Dr. Herring, and he, he's done a lot of work on this. So take a listen. There's a ton of resources that go into this particular episode. They are all listed in the show notes. I'm not going to call them out individually. You can go ahead and take a look whenever we get there. With that said, welcome back, Dr. Herring. So the background. Now, how do we get here? We went from one approach to a really radically different approach. And I want you to know that we didn't just think this up, but we really went to the literature and then compared it with our practice. So the ceiling effect. Sharon Walsh at the University of Kentucky, she has done some amazing work for decades. She continues to do amazing work and is a colleague of mine that I've really enjoyed learning from. She did early seminal work on the effects of buprenorphine in volunteers, where basically these are not folks who are on gigantic amounts of opioid every day. You know, these are not naive folks. They may have been exposed to opioid, but they're not dependent. And we knew that in rats, you could give these giant doses of buprenorphine. And it seemed that for these core effects of feeling drugged, feeling sedated and respiratory depression, that there was a ceiling. And the ceiling came on quite quickly, actually. So that was the basis to do this in humans. And what Sharon found, the doses of eight milligrams and 16 milligrams and 32 milligrams are all quite similar. That eight milligram dose, you actually see, I should say, statistically insignificant difference between eight milligrams and 32 milligrams, and then 16 in the middle. So that's really this difference between the maximum of eight milligrams in your visit to a maximum of 32. So this statistical lack of significance between these things is really drives the evolution of our approach versus the traditional tips 40 approach of two to four, and then two hours and another four. We've seen this repeated over and over again by different authors. The key thing here to remember is that the ceiling effect does not mean that there's no decrease in respiratory drive. Buprenorphine is a potent opioid. There is a decrease in respiratory rate, no question. Now, are you going to see this in opioid-dependent folks in withdrawal? No, you know, you're really not going to see it. In a volunteer, in a rat, you will see a reduction in respiratory rate. The reason this is important, this is where I get worried about sick people. And this is why I want all of you out there to be very careful with giving buprenorphine to people you as an ER doc think are sick. And as an ER doc, you know what sick means. Don't give a large dose of buprenorphine to sick people. There's no reason to. Go slow. So in the overdose setting, if you're not sure what's going on, they're not coming around right. They look like they might have something on, blood in their brain, sepsis, whatever. Be wary. You know, a big slug of buprenorphine could tip them over. 
and there's no advantage. So just stay away from it. Now, the other thing to understand is that while there is a ceiling effect for respiratory depression and sedation, there is this proportionate agonism that we see in analgesia and reduction in withdrawal. This is led by another one of my mentors and colleagues, Dr. Andrew Saxon, who's faculty at the University of Washington. And what they basically did is, this is back in the day when we were still thinking about this idea of detoxification, which is sort of out the window now, because we just know that people relapse and don't do well. So we talk about initiation. But back when they were talking about detoxification, they randomized, or not randomized, it was a pseudo-randomization with two cohorts. One cohort got 24 right off the bat, and another cohort got eight milligrams daily. And what you see is that very quickly in this chart is the folks who got the big dose, their visual analog score for the withdrawal intensity declined much more rapidly with the 24 versus the eight. The take-home point here is Sharon and other colleagues demonstrate that high doses are safe. Dr. Saxon and others demonstrate that you get a better benefit, meaning that the patient feels better. We got to remember that our goal here is to care for people who use drugs, give them the dignity and respect to actually care how they feel. So just like pain, you know, the idea is not to bring your pain down to the minimum tolerable, but to actually take away your pain. In the same way, treating withdrawal, you want to definitively treat withdrawal so they actually feel good. And that clearly occurs more frequently with bigger doses of buprenorphine. So we've talked about the ceiling effect, proportion agonism with withdrawal, and now we're going to talk about affinity. This is something which was kind of interesting for me to learn, but the mu opioid receptor affinity of buprenorphine, the lower the chi value, the ki value, is the higher the affinity. So buprenorphine is tremendously avid. That means that it actually will grab that opioid receptor more strongly than almost anything out there, including fentanyl, including naloxone. And here we're talking about the antagonist. But this means that buprenorphine will outcompete naloxone, right? So I'll say that again. Buprenorphine will outcompete naloxone. Buprenorphine will outcompete fentanyl. This is a very, very key concept which is fundamental to this idea of administering buprenorphine after reversal of an opioid overdose with naloxone. Now, the thing that's not on here is the speed at which buprenorphine binds. Buprenorphine is rather slow with its binding. So it's not as immediate as naloxone or fentanyl. So that's a little wrinkle, but you're going to get there with buprenorphine. It will displace the fentanyl. It will displace naloxone and attach onto the receptor. I just want to break in here with a reminder that Dr. Herring is mentioning a ton of different resources. And for those that are only able to listen to this rather than to see the visual presentation, I've listed all of the references in the show notes for you to go and take a look if you're wondering about the source material. There's the data in the textbook, but does this really work? Very quickly, this is a great study from 1988, Buprenorphine Antagonism of Ventilatory Depression Following Fentanyl Anesthesia by Boysen. This is basically around 20 women who had gone in for hysterectomy. Part of the analgesia involved fentanyl. If they had a respiratory rate below nine, which most of them actually ended up with a respiratory rate nearly zero, they were randomized to either six milligrams of buprenorphine 
versus 0.2 milligrams of naloxone. They administered it in an infusion and just kept going till their respiratory rate improved. What they found was that buprenorphine alone was just as potent as naloxone in reversing fentanyl-induced respiratory depression. So I'll say that again. Buprenorphine was as effective as naloxone in reversing fentanyl-induced respiratory depression. This is key for thinking about safety of this procedure. Small study, they're using IV, but it is consistent with the pharmacokinetic data that would imply that buprenorphine is more avid on the receptor than fentanyl and very reassuring. And that's really what I take away from this. Interestingly, the big difference in these two groups was that the group who got buprenorphine had much less pain versus naloxone, which causes just, it fundamentally causes distress. It's also interesting to see that the only statistical difference was that buprenorphine was a hair slower on onset, which is also consistent. So this is all lining up that the lab data is fitting clinical data, which is always reassuring. So the next study, really, there's very little else on this all the way through to Dr. Zamani, who's done this in several different versions, small studies, bigger studies. They're in Iran, where they have a tremendous opioid epidemic and have for a long time. It's complicated, and I don't even claim to have any idea about the details of their opioid situation, but it's prevalent. I would love to go there and study it, but I haven't had that opportunity and don't think I will in any time in the future. So here, Dr. Zamani and his team partnered with a pharmacologist from Australia to write up this paper where they're actually looking at people who are coming in with respiratory depression for methadone. It's a large group. You know, they're starting with 95 methadone intoxicated patients, which is fairly good, fairly large number of people. And they randomized them to either get two milligrams of naloxone, or if the respiratory rate was just barely down 0.04 milligrams. So pretty standard gold francs recommended dosing of naloxone versus 10 micrograms per kg or 15 micrograms per kg of buprenorphine administered over six or nine minutes, respectively. And they basically found that the buprenorphine was just as good at reversing the overdose and they had less distress. So the cow score was lower overall. Certainly if you used a lower dose of buprenorphine, the 10 micrograms per kg, it was drastically lower and that people were quite comfortable. But there were a couple of patients here who didn't have complete reversal. But if you use 15 micrograms per kilogram, of buprenorphine, you completely reverse the overdose purely with buprenorphine. Okay, pause. Am I recommending that you use buprenorphine as a primary method to reverse opioid overdose? The answer is no. These data are to inform our understanding of the drug. I really, 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 really don't want people charging off reversing overdose with buprenorphine. This is just to let you know that once buprenorphine is in the system, of someone who has overdosed on opioid, all existing data would suggest that the buprenorphine will outcompete that opioid and lead them towards recovery of their respiratory drive and reversal of the overdose. So that there's that risk of, what if I introduce buprenorphine to an opioid overdose and it makes them worse? The data we have now would suggest everything is the opposite. It makes them better. So that's a key point that I hope we're clear on. Finally, Rachel Harraz and her team 
who are doing amazing work in Camden, New Jersey, also has presented a case. But this is a little different. This is where they gave naloxone for someone to induce withdrawal and then gave buprenorphine afterwards. This is a case that I also wouldn't recommend naloxone for the purpose of induction. There's a long history of these kind of aggressive, rapid treatments of addiction, which I think are probably not warranted at this time. But it's just to let you know that this occurred. Rachel is an incredible human being and a wonderful physician of tremendous respect for. Finally, cows. We've already really discussed this, but I just wanted to let you guys know, Andy Tompkins, he's at UCSF. He's a psychiatrist and pharmacologist par excellence. He's amazing, really dives into this withdrawal stuff, tremendous detail. He was initially trained with Eric Strain and others at Johns Hopkins. When you compare withdrawal secondary naloxone from using, and so you, you administer naloxone, someone who's opioid dependent, you make them sick. And you compare the cow score to just a simple unidimensional visual analog score of how sick do you feel? They behave identically. So the point here is, again, is you don't need to be able to administer a complex scale. Is that basically, if you know the causal thing is opioid withdrawal, either from naloxone or from abstinence, a simple intensity of their illness is really sufficient. So if they're very sick, that's going to be equivalent to a cows of 10, 12, etc. And you're good to go with buprenorphine. Now, the big dose. What we're seeing is that there's really a variety of dosing with buprenorphine. You can do microdosing. That means butrans, 20 microgram per hour patch. You can put that on anyone at any time. And most people won't even notice it's on there. Then there's this little middle dose where it actually kicks off the opioid, displaces it from the receptor, but doesn't actually have a replacement agonist signal because buprenorphine has to exert agonism to maintain someone who uses two grams of heroin a day, three grams, four grams of heroin a day. There's a lot of agonism that gets packed in with buprenorphine. It's potent. So if you just give a little of it, you just get this wimpy agonist signal that people interpret as feeling crummy. And then there's this dose where it displaces, kicks off everything in there, and it overcomes binding these other drugs and gives a strong agonist signal and people feel well. So it's basically kind of building a rationale for kind of going up the dose chain. One thing to remember is that displacement is painful and that's different from withdrawal. So there's withdrawal, which is also distressful. But I think of the event of kicking an opioid off its receptor as being intrinsically uncomfortable. And there's a lot of variability, just like there's a variability in how people deal with their leg being broken. Some people are exquisitely sensitive to the displacement of whatever drug it is by buprenorphine. There's just no question about it. I really see this in my pain practice, where some folks just a little hair of antagonism and they feel awful. Other folks, like the classic is just kind of the younger person, the 20s person, who they flip-flop back and forth between heroin and buprenorphine like it's nothing. And then maybe on the other end of the spectrum is the guy who's been using heroin for 40 years, and he is just not going to handle any withdrawal. Absolutely not. They just will not deal with it. It's too painful. So that concept of displacement is painful is important. The question is, you know, how long 
do we need to let people feel sick and how much do we give them? So applying this to overdose, I can tell you some very specific cases that we went through here at Highland where two of them were overdosed right in front of me. It was crazy. They took a counterfeit Xanax that just turned out to be pure, whatever analog, crazy, potent fentanyl. They literally, one of them passed out in triage and then the other ones were more gradually went into withdrawal. Both of them got reversed. Both of them got buprenorphine. Both of them did great. And both of them followed up in my clinic the next day. Patient C was a typical gentleman who was injecting heroin and he got Narcan in the field, came in. And here he was cows of in that really mild zone, you know, four, five, six. He was awake and got buprenorphine and felt great. So I've really watched this work in individual patients. And here's how what we think is going on is you have the overdose. And so this is the scale, this idea of agonist effect and withdrawal effect. So positive and negative, negative being withdrawal effect. You have the overdose and the naloxone comes in and outcompetes all of the opioid there, producing a profound withdrawal. Going back to displacement feels bad, they feel very, very bad. So it's a scorched earth event. All the naloxone's gone. So in that time, when the naloxone's there, that's the best time. That is the best time to administer the buprenorphine because they're, they're negative. Their body is creating agonist signal. Buprenorphine comes on board and provides that agonist signal. So the net effect is agonism. And that means they, back to our balance, is that that means that they feel good. So this is what we're seeing is that the patients respond quite well. The second patient, it was a little bit of a delay for all kinds of real world ER issues. And so they get it later down the line, but it's the same thing. As long as they're negative, you know, going back to this cow score, Rachel Harrow's used cows of seven in New Jersey. We said four. The background principle, I think, is as long as they're in the withdrawal state of some kind, you've got a green light to administer buprenorphine. So Dr. Herring, we have gone through a ton of data today. And the last thing I want to get to before we hit the wrap up is, are there any specific future points of research or things that you know are on the horizon or data that you think we really need to collect next to further the use of buprenorphine after opiate overdose? One of the pieces that we're really looking forward to getting better at is understanding the reversal because there's a tremendous range in practice of reversal. There are harm reduction sites in Canada where they routinely observe people using fentanyl and almost never use any naloxone. They use positioning and supplemental oxygen. And then there are other places that will push two milligrams of IV naloxone routinely. There's probably a middle ground there where your goal is to, as gently as possible, you know, again, thinking of this from a patient-centered standpoint, what if this was your mom who had fallen and broken their leg and you were trying to titrate their analgesia so that they feel well? The same kind of compassion and empathy to the person who's using drugs and overdose. Like, how can I do this as gently as possible to get them to wake up and be able to understand what's going on and not send them into a delirium, but also not have them be at risk for 
falling back into respiratory depression the moment I, I turn my back and take care of that other STEMI that's just walked in. So that's a real future area I'd like to understand better. We have had two podcasts over the course of 45 minutes all about this with a ton of information. Dr. Herring, can you give us the wrap-up? What, what is the big take-home summary that everybody listening to this should know so that they can go forth and use the information that you have presented? Once they're there, not too reversed so that they're delirious and can't understand and can't handle sublingual, but not asleep, that's your window there for administration of buprenorphine. You want to have shared decision-making. This is something that as much as possible is supposed to increase engagement because ultimately that's really the goal here is to have a patient who trusts the medical system, who appreciates you as a doctor in a hospital so that they want to come back and engage in long-term treatment. The thing we want to avoid is a bad experience that makes people not trust the medical system, disengage from treatment, and live at increased risk for overdose death. You administer the dose. Really, the dose, we're not certain. I'm probably going to lean towards Rachel's approach, the 8 or 16 as an initial dose. But certainly, one can start with lower as long as you really commit to following it up if it's not enough. You want to follow up at minimum in half an hour. If they're not where you want them to be in half an hour, you really need to keep going or you're going to prolong suffering unnecessarily in this population. If you have access to IV, that's fabulous. It's a great drug and, and you can use that in folks that are vomiting. And after you've taken care of them, they're feeling better. You know, we call it the sandwich sign. You know, feeling better means, hey, doc, can I have a sandwich? So you want to make sure they get there. You want to make sure they eat, they can walk around. They've talked to a counselor and then you discharge them. That typically means two hours for an event as serious associated with such a tremendous mortality as an opioid overdose. I think a two hour length of stay is certainly warranted in terms of resource utilization. Thank you, Dr. Herring, for presenting all of this fantastic information to us today. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the ASEP Equal podcast series earlier in this feed or at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. Send us any comments you got. We'd love to keep the conversation going. Thanks for listening today.